Influencers, inspiration, and Instagram, Instagram, Instagram. This is Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Connor here. Uh, Welcome back to another episode of Earned. Today, we welcome a very esteemed guest and friend, the president and founding GM of Verse Skincare, Melanie Bender. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Hey. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to see you in another venue, like Clubhouse, back at it again. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, So, some fun facts about Melanie, for those that don't know. She actually started out studying at my alma mater in aerospace engineering, um, then went on to found her own agency before the age of 30. She then went on to help develop a billion-dollar mall project with Westfield, and then finally, you know, helped to found Verst just a few years ago, which some fun facts about Verst, it's the third fastest-growing skincare brand that we track out of the top 50, and it has jumped over 100 slots in the last couple of years, from 2019, where it was number 149, all the way up to number 39 in March, and accelerating, obviously. So congrats on the success there and, and, and everything you've accomplished. It's super impressive. Thank you. Oh, it means a lot coming from you. And I did not know that we shared uh, Cal Poly. It's a fun fact. Oh, yeah. I didn't either until I started looking at it. I was like, how did I not know this in the past? Um, <laughs> Hopefully you rely on on your major from from then more than I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to dive- although, although Verse verse does feel like a rocket ship. So. <laughs> there you go. That is that is the kind of connection they pay you for there. Um, <laughs> um, cool. Well, let's, you know. Let's start at, I actually, this is where I want to start. So, you know, uh, for those that don't know, Tribe actually was very close to hiring Melanie a very long time ago, um, <laughs> back when Tribe was a tiny little thing that was getting going. And I feel like that's kind of a consistent theme for you over the course of your career, whether it was founding the agency at a very young age, or it was doing the billion dollar mall project from the ground up or founding Burst. What is it that's that's drawn you to starting things? Because I feel like a lot of people, that's you know, that's what they want to do. So what what's drawn you there? And then what are some of the things that you've learned over time? Yeah, well, I definitely, in my case, it, it wasn't uh, the case of setting out wanting to be an entrepreneur at all. Uh, I am someone who is incredibly curious. Um, I have to follow my curiosity. I need the answers. I need to know how things work. And I think with time, I found that I really, I love to build and I love to build with, with scale, with speed and, and most of all with purpose. And when you're navigating by those things, it, it, it does draw you to those greenfield opportunities to create something new, but most importantly, to create something special, to create something that has an emotional connection that you feel like is, is needed. That's feels like the future. And I think those are the opportunities that I saw with, um, with each of those experiences, whether it was being an entrepreneur or being an entrepreneur. Um, and I think one thing that I have learned that I, I try to share with all the incredible people that I get to mentor or have a part of my team is the, the power in knowing what your interests are. Uh, what are you excited about? What do you want to take on? Knowing what the interests are of, you know, whether it's your, your leader, your manager, your, your CEO and figuring out where do those two things intersect? And when you can find that, that area, um, of shared passion, shared interest, to me, that's where the magic happens because it opens up such great possibilities. And ultimately, you know, you can end up making your own, um, making your own your own career path, and that's what I did in in both of the the times I've been a founding executive. Um, first, with my agency, I had joined a, a marketing firm 
It's a very junior level person. Uh, and uh, the role was focused on architecture and design. And I wanted to get into fashion because that's what I love doing. Uh, and I pitched the CEO on launching a fashion practice over uh, the first year of growing that practice. It had grown to such a significant um, portion of the business that I was asked to co-found a new firm with him, um, all because I, I said, hey, I have this kind of crazy idea. Will you talk to me about it? Um, and the same with first. I was brought into Who What Wear under an incredible CEO, Catherine Power, um, and I was there to do to do marketing, um, to do marketing for their media brands, for their consumer brands, which they had, had two, um, the second one uh, of which I launched with them. And it was maybe six months into the job that I learned that she wanted to create a beauty brand and do it with the Who Will Work community. And I literally wrote that into my job description. <laughs> here's my here's my new role, here's my new title. Um, there, was, there was obviously a little bit more dialogue before I did that. I highly recommend, you know, broaching the conversation. But I collaborated with my leader on what I wanted to take on and what she wanted to see happen and, uh, and, and versus ultimately what came out of that. Is there any, I mean, so I was talking to you before we started about, you know, we're launching a new application for the creators, for the influencers. And I am terrified because it's like my reputation on the line. Like, I'm like, this is a project. I want to do it. We're going to do it. And like, it's, you know, it's going really well. Early signals are strong, but we're not there yet. Right. Um, is there a lot of fear for you going into that? Or is that not something you've, you've, uh, you not struggle with the same thing I do there? You know, I think I gravitated towards entrepreneurialism in a specific way by having strong partners, um, whether it was in my agency with my um, the the other managing partners or with Verse, with Catherine and the two other members that were on the founding team. And to me, it's that partnership that takes away the fear because it opens up you know, new points of view, new ideas, but it also gives you a forum for that constructive feedback and for working through the problems. And to me, the fear comes from not being able to verbalize it when it's sitting in my head. That's when I'm the most, the most anxious. And I think by having people that you trust at the table with you, your decisions become a lot more reasoned, a lot more sound. And you also build that capability to work through whatever happens. All we can do is make the best decision based on the data that we have. And really the true learning comes from once you start to take those steps. Um, and I think ultimately success comes down to the people that are taking those steps with you, that you're able to lean in when you're finding that success and that you're able to, to pivot quickly without fear, without judgment, when it's more of a constructive learning. <laughs> I, I like that. Constructive learning. Um, Constructive. No, I mean, I think having, I think having, you know, conviction and a point of view is important. I can't remember who it was that I was listening to recently. I think it was the CEO of HubSpot. And he was talking about, which is, you know, for those that don't know, it's like a CRM system, like a Salesforce, and they've done very well, right? They're like, I think they're worth $20 billion. And he was the founding CEO. And he said, you know, the key to big success is having conviction around an idea that people generally disagree with, right? Like having a different mm -hmm. view on the world that um, not everybody has at that time, right? And that's how you actually have really big outcomes. And so, uh, but it Absolutely. is it is scary. <laughs> I mean, like, I yeah, anyways, let's keep going with you. So I before we get into more of Verse, because there's so much I want to ask there, because what you've achieved over the last few years is just super, super impressive. 
Um, but before we get there, I'd love to hear just for people to understand your journey a little bit better, right? So you started in aerospace engineering, then went into environmental sciences, then went into marketing, and then talk me through some of those decision points, right? Like how did that, it's not the straightest path I've ever seen in terms of... Uh... No, very nonlinear, <laughs> honestly, very, very confusing and really hard. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was setting out. I grew up in Hawaii in what I call pre-social media time. So I didn't know that there were jobs running beauty brands and fashion brands and working at those media companies. Um, and I was always someone that I excelled in uh, in science and math. And honestly, I chose aerospace engineering because it looked hard and there were no girls at that table. And that seemed like at 17, which is how old I was when I, I left to go to college, um, that seemed like reason enough to, to take that on. Because um, I think I always loved certainly learning, but also tackling difficult problems, being able to kind of strip things down to the bones to understand how it really works and then, you know, build it back and, and hopefully build it back better. Um, and I would say leaning into that major was a character building experience. And as a whole, I got to where I was by first finding out what I didn't want to do. Uh, and I think one great thing I did was learn from those instances and not hold myself stuck in the path that I told my parents that I was going to take, or I told myself that I was going to take, um, but giving myself just enough space to, to, take turns and make a change. And it was actually in visiting an uncle who was an aerospace engineer at his office. And he showed me not the planes that he works on, not the plane parts that he works on, but the bolts of the plane parts <laughs> that he works on. And I said, okay, maybe aerospace engineering isn't what, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a, a woman that can work on a bolt. <laughs> um, but it was sort of there that I reassessed and um, I received a, a scholarship to, to go back to Hawaii and, um, study within their uh, their ocean and earth sciences program under global environmental science, which is basically the study of sustainability before we really talked about sustainability in, in the way we do now. Um, this is close to 20 years ago at this point. And what really drew me to that is, again, it was understanding how things work. But in my opinion, sustainability and environmental science is the science that's most closely linked with humanity, because we all depend on the environment, the you know, the living ecosystems, the, the waterways, the, the, the sky for, for everything, everything we, we love and hold dear in our life comes back to that. And how could you not want to learn more about it? And once you become aware of the state that it's in and the state that we've pushed it to over, you know, industrial times, how could you not want to be active in? changing that course. Yeah. And that was what really drew me into that field and just loved every minute, every second of studying it. Um, and I left that and, and started working in sustainability consulting, doing some super cool things like setting the impact of, of climate on coral reefs uh, and bringing rail mass transit to, to Honolulu. Um, but again, I didn't feel whole. It I didn't feel like the creative part of my brain, the part of my brain that desired to connect with other people was really being being stimulated. Um, and at the time I had moved from Hawaii to New York and it was in New York that it again, I, I kind of reassessed and everything is in New York, including <laughs> marketing, including fashion and beauty. Um, and I took a, a big leap uh, and it was through that leap that I landed at the marketing agency that I started working at for a year and then founded another company with. So it is a very circuitous path. I had no idea that this is where I would end up and 
even now I, I look back and if I could tell my young self any one thing, it would be, that, you know, it, it's going to turn out awesome. Just keep working hard. But the reality is, you know, I, I had a lot of, a lot of uncertainty and anxiety about where I was going to end up because I just, the career path that felt right for me didn't really exist. And so I had to create it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think the two things that stand out to me about your story, one is this, I've heard it, I I believe it's called inversion, right? But it's a process of not saying like, this is what I want the most, but these are the things that I don't want, right? And you just, (laughs) you start eliminating things and it sounds silly, but it's actually a really great way. You know, I've thought about what do I want to do in the future? Like, you know, post-drive and I'm like, well, I really like starting companies, right? So I like that. And I just like looked at these different roles and I was like, well, I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. And I don't want to do that. So it kind of, that process of elimination is actually quite effective. And then um, second is if you actually look at the portfolio of experiences that you've had, um, whether it was kind of the, you know, sustainability and environmentalism, um, it was the product development at MANA, it was the work you did in retail at Westfield, um, you know, the marketing and brand development work that you did at the agency and otherwise. It's actually kind of a great cocktail for for Versed in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like those are the, it seems like the core elements that have made it successful out of the gates. Yeah, you know, it it absolutely is. And I wish that I could say it was a part of my great big plan. But again, it really just came down to, hey, I'm curious about this one thing. And ultimately, I think following your curiosity, it leads you to what other people were missing. Mm -hmm. And when I was at Westfield, everyone was talking about digital and that had been what the rest of my time in, in marketing had been, but Hey, like 80 to 90% of retail sales are still retail sales are still going through brick and mortar. So why not learn something about what that environment looks like mm-hmm. and, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and how you leverage that. And same with, uh, with Mana, I had done everything very kind of front of house focusing on digital and communications and consumer marketing. And they were amazing, excellent chemists. And it felt kind of like a weird step, but that was how I learned about product development. And, and ultimately that the difference between a prestige formula and a mass formula is basically packaging and markup. Um, so I do, I mean, yeah, man, looking back, I get to lean on all of those experiences in a really powerful way. Um, and someone who is starting out now will see other opportunities and be curious about other things. And I do believe that that's going to lead them to, you know, kind of that, that next big, uh, opportunity within whether it's beauty or fashion or wherever, um, wherever it takes them. So follow your curiosity. It leads you to incredible places. And, you know, ultimately it's you that gets to string all those things together. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's, let's talk about Versed now. So, you know, obviously it's been growing really quickly. We'd love to hear some high level stats. Obviously I gave some of the EMV stats, right? Close to hundred percent year over year in the last six months, fastest growing top three, et cetera. But we'd love to hear some stats just for the audience. And then second, um, you know, what do you think is, what are the elements that have made it really successful? I mean, we've, we've talked about some yeah. of them, but would love to hear those two things. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're, we're not even two years old. Yep. Um, and we are according to, to Forbes and IRI, the fastest growing clean skincare brand within mass, uh, in the U S which is just incredible. Uh, last year we shipped over 2 million products, uh, we have a, a top five moisturizer, a top five cleanser, a top five SPF um, within where we're sold. And, you know, ultimately our, our mission has been to not just create a huge high performing 
super fast growing brand, but to create the clean brand that lets people shop into products that are good for them, products that are good for their planet in, uh, you know, really for the first time. So love those high levels. That's what I think last year we grew, it was over 200% um, year over year. Our DGC is growing 500% um, year over year. So it's kind of wild and crazy, but I think other really important stats that I look to that I think ultimately are responsible for our success is that we have the most stringent no list uh, in all of drugstore skincare uh, to formulate safe for your body, your skin, and your planet. We are, I believe, the largest brand to beauty brand to be carbon neutral, net zero emissions in the present, not saying, hey, five <laughs> years from now, but saying no now Wow! <laughs> and going all the way back to launch. Um, and, you know, definitely putting the community at the center of everything we do. And that was how we came to be by tapping into this uh, community at Who, What, Where and talking to them about beauty and what was working for them and the laundry list of things that wasn't. Over 50,000 of those people have actively participated in the development of our brand, doing things like testing formulas, doing online surveys with us, doing focus groups. Um, and I think it's it's those things that have made us the powerhouse that we are. I think absolutely we had incredible strategy coming out. We saw an opportunity to leverage specifically mass retail, which had felt more stagnant than certainly than direct to consumer, um, also than prestige retail. Um, we saw the opportunity that mass clean skincare was going to be hung. There was a huge amount of consumer appetite uh, and a, a real degree of have and have not of people with high income, high access, high education. Their routines are changing and the 90%, you know, they're saying, hey, clean sounds amazing. Having products that work for dark spots and hormonal acne, I want that, but it's just not for me. Yep. Um, and it was having that consumer feedback and every brand leverages data. But for us, that became our DNA and it became not about what Melanie wants or what Catherine wants or what our, what our product development director wants, but what does the community want? How do we put them at the center and how do we give them a voice um, in a way that they haven't been listened to? And it translates into eight different types of proprietary data that we leverage, um, some that are qualitative, some that are quantitative, and really that power us at, at every single part of the decision journey. But it's also become our culture to really be transparent to that community, to be accountable to them. Um, and I, I do feel that that is some of the best marketing decisions we've made to walk the walk. Yep. And for us, the focus is always on authenticity and not what can we say, but what can we do? Knowing that by building trust with our consumer and by committing to being accountable to them and being straight about, hey, like, here's where we are. Here's where we're not yet, but we want to be. That has really brought a lot more of that connection to mass skincare that was missing. Because at the time that we came in, when we talked to our community about masking, Kelly said it's airbrushing, it's hyped up ingredients, mm -hmm. none of it works for me. Um, and ultimately, that was what we we wanted to solve. We wanted to bring that that trust and that soul back to an industry that touches basically everyone <laughs> because we all have skin. Yep, yep, yeah. The uh... sorry, you got me distracted. It's something I was going to ask you or I was going to comment on. Oh, the feedback loop. I think that feedback loop that you're talking about, you say everybody does it, but I don't know that everybody does, right? Like, and I think that's part of what um, makes the internet really special is just that ability to communicate directly with your customers in a meaningful one-to-one -one way and to, you know, and then to, to respond to their feedback in a really kind of short time span. So yeah. it's, uh, it's super powerful and it's not surprising to hear that that's what you guys are doing, but um, impressive nonetheless.
Yeah. And I'd say, you know, while data is incredibly important, it is more of an art than a science. Um, and that's where I recognize that, you know, I've done the scientist thing in the past mm -hmm. and I am not a scientist now. I have a vested interest in the outcome. I have a direction I want to take. Things. I want to take things cleaner, more affordable, better skin, better for the planet. Um, and data is always, it's backward looking. It's amazing at explaining the past. It can be really, really bad at predicting the future. And just look at past elections or like you name it that, that we've quote gotten wrong with our models. Um, so for, for us, you know, we really, we use data to understand our consumer, to empathize with them. Um, how are they making decisions? What are they thinking and feeling? But ultimately then it's up to us to extract, extrapolate that into this future world, this future product. Um, that, that future state. And I think that is what has been so tremendous at helping us be, you know, five years ahead of the pack. And as I reflect back at last year in COVID, it was a year of just huge acceleration towards mass essential retailers mm -hmm. at the time, you know, when we that got things first well. together. That, that wasn't a word, <laughs> yeah. but we saw that coming. Yeah. We saw that people said, why do I have to go to a specialty retailer to buy a clean beauty item? Like, that's silly. Why can't I just buy it at the store that I'm already at? Same with clean, same with sustainability, same with accountability. All those things were very forward indicators. And we set ourselves up in a way that let us see that first and act on that first so that when that acceleration did happen, we were there at, at kind of the peak of that wave and ready to ride it. Yeah, I mean, that was a, that was a heck of a wave to get on. Let's talk, actually, let's talk about the wave. So hyper growth, right? Most people never experience this in their careers. Realistically, most people don't aren't part of a company that grows over 100% a year in a given year. Um, what were some of the challenges over the last, call it two years for you in scaling that up, in, in handling that kind of growth? Oh man, it's wild. It's wild. I think when we launched, we had 10, 10 or so people, around 10. Um, we launched and went full chain with Target, which is 1,800 doors in two months, which is just bananas for everyone that's done a, anyone who's done a startup. That is unreal. And brick and mortar has very unique challenges over digital because it's it's physical and real and it's a location and it it is just such a bigger such a bigger chain of execution. Um, and now we're at just under 30 people. We've onboarded 30% of our staff during COVID, have never met them. So it, it has been wild. And there is nothing more incredible and meaningful than being there on day one, being there with people that took that risk, that had that fear that you're feeling right now about your influencer app. I mean, there were months and months of us saying, gee, like, we like it. Let's see what other people think. And to have that be received and recognized by the community that we built it for, it just, there's nothing that that feels like that. And to be able to share that with other people is incredible. Um, we never, this is, you know, certainly exceeding the growth that we projected. So there are absolutely challenges with not just keeping up on that, but continuing to grow in the right way. And that's always how we've approached things. It's not, you know, how do we get to 20 million, 50 million? It's how do we build the business that has that meeting, that has that connection, that has that longevity? Because ultimately we believe that in 20 years from now, those are the businesses that are going to have stuck around and matter. Mm -hmm. And those are the harder things, building for longevity, building for purpose. Um, and, you know, I think one thing we absolutely believe in and, and do is 
invest in our team, invest in our people. I think they are the single, yes, we have amazing data, <laughs> but the single greatest thing that's contributed to our success is the people that have invested in the brand with us. And that's our team members, um, but also our community really thinking about how do we continue to take them along for the ride? That first person that tested our formulas that took a chance on us. Um, so those are some things that we try to really invest in as we scale. Um, and, you know, ultimately the needs of our company now, they look very different than they did a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all about building that foundation that you can grow on top of. And I think another really important piece of it is, is that feedback and that communication. I talked a little bit about trust and having trust on your team. Ultimately, I need everyone on my team being my eyes and ears because I'm not going to think of everything. I'm not going to see anything until some things are, are, are ready to smack me in the face. <laughs> so it's really important to, to create that environment of open feedback mm -hmm. of, you know, supporting that constructive um, thinking and criticism as it comes in. It means that, you know, it's you're slower to make decisions. It's, it's not, it's, it's harder to work through those things as they come. It means that, you know, not every idea gets to be the brilliant idea because there's a lot more that goes into making it work. But ultimately that becomes your kind of your defense for those threats that pop up. And it's been a big part of, of our success in being able to continue to thrive as we grow. Um, we have incredibly low turnover. I think we've only had, you know, two or three people turnover in the, the three years that we've had team associated with the company. Um, and I think also part of that is just really trying to think about the growth path for each of those individuals mm -hmm. and how do you keep fueling what they're excited about and what they want to be a part of as, as we continue to grow. Yeah, it's tough. I think when the company grows that quickly, you have to hire a lot of new roles, right? And of course, you always want to kind of promote from within, but sometimes that can be challenging, right? Where it's like, hey, we love how you're doing in this role and there's a new role that's opening up. And yes, it's above you, but um, you know, we just don't think you're right fit today, right? We want to help you grow into that person, but you're not there yet. That was definitely, yeah. that was a challenge I had. Um, I tended to, yeah. I tended to lean towards the, you know, just promote from within and then deal with the the headache or you know with the tr the the growing pains, but I don't know that that was always the right decision either. So it's uh, it's yeah. tough. Managing people is definitely the single hardest part of every job I've I've been in, and that's not because like people are hard and bad, but it's because. You know, you really, you invest in people, they invest in you and you want to, you want to, to be that great place for them that they can thrive in. I'd say, you know, some of my philosophy as a manager, I don't know if I'd say like I'm as far as radical candor, but I've been told I'm direct. Like the best time to give feedback is, you know, kind of real time as you're seeing things. Of course, in a constructive way, like how do we learn from this? How can we set ourselves up differently? But don't wait until, you know, it's the end of the year and the employee is expecting a promotion or whatever to say, hey, like, actually, like, I, I think we could have done better in this area or here's an area of growth. Um, so I think being as transparent as possible with expectations, with opportunities for growth, that ultimately lets people be more successful. And also, like, we created our essentially our logic around um, professional growth. And, and we were transparent around that as well. We said, you know, here's what we look for, for someone to be promoted. Here's how we set our salaries. Here's how we set our titles. One, so that it was equitable, because if everything's left up to 
the discretion of one manager or one leader, like that doesn't work out. Mm -hmm, <laughs> we know mm -hmm. that <laughs> we have data on this. <laughs> so ultimately you want to take that bias out of it and kind of open up that logic so that people can see this is how I succeed. This is what's important to me, whether it's going to a new field, whether it is being promoted and they can all optimize for that path that they want, but they can also bring their manager into it and say, Hey, like I want to go in this direction. How can we work on that together at first? Totally. I think the, uh, your comments on the performance review, uh, the phrase I always liked was if the performance review is a surprise, you know, that's on the manager, not on the employee, right? Like you should have been yeah. communicating that much more clearly and much earlier. Um, Absolutely. Well, let's talk about marketing because I want to tap into your marketing brain here because you've been thinking about it for a while. Um, so first off, you know, how do you think about balancing kind of your, well, actually, let's take a step back. I'd love to know kind of general split, like how much, I know you said D2C is growing 500%, which is great, but like how big is that? Is it 10%, 20% general ballparks, just so we have an, an awareness? Yeah. yeah. Um, and then secondarily, how do you think about kind of splitting budget between those two? Like what are your, what is your general split internally? Yeah, definitely. Our, our D2C this year, it's about 20% of our, of our total business. Yep. And that's 20% of a pretty sizable business. We're in over 3000 retail stores yep. um, and launching in boots tomorrow. Uh, today's the 12th. Oh, wow. That's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you say you're doing? Um, you're opening like five stores a day or something like that. Some insane number. For our first, it was for our first, um, would have been our first maybe 16 months. It was the equivalent of, of five stores a day. We, we were in uh, 3000 stores as of uh, maybe like 14, 15 months in, which is bananas. <laughs> this is wild. But you it's know, wild that you can it do was, that. It was the opportunity. Like that that's even an option is just insane to me. Um, it's just not how, I mean, anyways, okay, keep going, keep going. Uh, but yeah, D2C, it's about 20%. That percent of business that is D2C is also growing significantly year over year. And that's because we believe while not our, you know, most sizable channel, it is our most important channel. That is what makes us different than L'Oreal because that is our connection to our consumer. Mm. That is our ability to, you know, own the relationship with them, to drive personalized messaging, to get to know them, their behavior, um, to bring them closer to our brand and to communicate so much more than we can on a piece of product packaging or a retailer's website. Yep. So we obsess about D2C. <laughs> Um, and you know, that looks like certainly like it's a, it's an over and above investment in the experience in how we launch products in the marketing around it, but it's also just aligning all of our thinking so that as a team, we're clear why we're prioritizing D2C yep. and even our retail partners, you know, they know the value of it. They know that we launch products D2C first before they go into retail for a reason. And they support us on that yep. um, because ultimately that is what lets us stay ahead, drive excitement. Say as a brand that is doing really well direct to consumer, what would you say are like the core elements for you of investment? Like what are the areas that you're investing in that you think are driving your, your success there? Yeah. You know, first I, I think it really is that, team alignment on that it's a priority. That is the number one priority. Um, and even, you know, that goes to our retail team that they're, you know, they're responsible for growing the retail business, but they're also all in on D2C being our, our flagship account and, you know, working with what that means. Mm -hmm. um, so I think first, you know, really creating that, um, that 
North Star mission for everyone on the team um, because it, it really does take everyone's everyone's support. It takes certainly, you know, our, our, our head of e-com and our marketing team, but also our product development team who's developing products for, for D2C, in some cases D2C exclusive items, for our retail team that's, you know, figuring out how do we grow and scale retail in a way that also, you know, builds and drives an owned business. Um, so certainly that alignment. And I would say, you know, the big levers that we have, ultimately, like it, it comes down to product and having something that people want, mm-hmm. um, figuring out how to leverage both your existing products and your newness in a way that really drive the business, that create moments of excitement, that drive traffic, that drive replenishment business. Um, we do launch every item direct to consumer first. It could be a few weeks. It could be a few months exclusive on D2C. Um, and we're also starting to do D2C exclusive items. And those are items that, you know, we really believe in the solution, but it's not something that's appropriate to be in 3,000 stores. <laughs> um, so kind of <laughs> figuring out how do we create these complementary distribution channels is, is kind of the, the big uh, the big MO. Um, certainly the experience of the site itself, investing in service, we've had a... Um, a chat SMS hotline from launch recognizing that people have so many questions about skincare. Um, and while SMS is a fantastic marketing channel and we use it in that way as well, um, we also want to really be a service and, um, and kind of personalized help platform. So that's a big part of it. Um, and then of course, like the marketing that goes behind it, acquisition marketing is a significant focus and, and, and light item for us right now. We're just getting to the point that we can really, you know, invest in, uh, and, and drive in the more, um, powerful retention marketing. Um, so we're going to be building like a CDP later this year. We're going to be able to do programmatic later this year. Um, but right now, you know, it's, it's really building it, uh, building it from the ground up. So starting with product that you believe in, building a, a site and an experience that is something that your consumer is excited about that they want to come back to. Um, and then really just understanding the fundamentals of the business uh, and creating a tight, a tight faucet, a tight sink. So that is you're pumping people in and, you know, really pushing more of the, the traffic and, and acquisition on that business. You're able to keep them, retain them, convert them into a high lifetime value, uh, lifetime value consumer, which is ultimately that's what will make the the site uh, sustainable in the long term. We are not a crazy CAC brand. <laughs> we want to be profitable on uh, on that first purchase. Um, so that's also a part of it. So I think it's that's really important to talk about that there is so much excitement and urgency around scaling a D2C business if you're in a beauty business, but there's also now more and more focus on profitability, which I think is a fantastic thing. And we really look for you know, strategies and, um, and the path forward that threads both of those. Um, because ultimately, you know, we, again, like we're, we're here to build something that is, is powerful and meaningful and dominant 20 years from now. Um, and D2C is an important part of that, but it's all about building it in, in that right way. 100%. Yeah, for those that don't know what CAC is, it's customer acquisition costs. And what she's saying is there's a lot of brands that will invest ahead, right? So they'll say, hey, I'm going to pay you know $25 to acquire this customer, but I'm only going to make you know $10 off of because you know, it pays off over time, which is a, you know, is a, a real theory, right? But it, um, I think it can lead to uh, sometimes bad choices, right? Uh, or not, not, not yeah. optimal, not efficient choices. Um, yeah. Which is just fantastic. And I think that... particularly with... No, you go. You go. Yeah, go ahead. 
I was going to say, particularly with digital acquisition, I think the big understanding has to be that you don't own that. You don't have control over that. And brands that were um, starting as G2C only brands five or six years ago in a time where there wasn't a lot of competition on those ad placements, you could you could acquire people for very inexpensively and you know then you have them for the long term. But the challenge that comes with is more brands have raced into that um, without really having new inventory to create. There's a fixed amount of people that are online that are engaging with um, with you know Facebook or, or Google. Um, it's really driven up costs. And as, even in the last year, as we saw what was happening during COVID, there was a huge uh, you know a huge acquisition cost trough around mid year. Uh, where everyone was spending a lot more time online. It became very inexpensive to acquire customers. So we leaned in hard, um, but we really kept an eye on those numbers. And, you know, a few months later, it looked very different. Everyone had shifted their strategies where they were ready to to be doubling down on digital and, and those costs went up significantly. So it does come back to, you know, really having your, your head screwed and straight about what you're willing to spend for a customer, but also not building your business in a way that's beholden to, you know, to these channels that you can't control, can't own. And that is a big part of the, the omni-channel strategy of, of retail meets D2C, that the number of people that are walking through those retail doors or are touched by those retail channels or it's enormous. Uh, and, and for us, you know, I, I yep. always looked at that as revenue positive awareness, revenue positive advertising that ultimately makes it so much more efficient to reach people and, and bring them in. Yeah. It's very underrated thinking of retail as a marketing channel rather than as a sales channel um, or as both, I should say. Um, and mm-hmm. then I think on the, the, the D to C side, the kind of thing that's under the surface is like, I, you know, I talk to a lot of like very sophisticated organizations that present me with these, you know, return on ad spend models, ROAS models that are like, just not accurate, right? Like, it's like, they're blending together, like, you know, oh, I acquired this customer. It's like, they were already a customer, right? You didn't acquire anything. So it's like, it's, um, it's a messy space. And I think people have spent a lot of money. I, obviously it's worked for a lot of people, but you can uh, you can create a money pit really quickly if you don't do it right. So, mm-hmm. yep. So let's talk about influencers. So again, you know, in our data, you're you're shooting up the rankings, and so I'd love to hear about what your general philosophies are there, like how you've approached the space, and then and then what you think's been contributing to to your winning there. Yeah, you know, it was easy to see three years ago as we were developing the brand. It was very easy to see that influencer was the channel to create a new brand, to drive that first-time awareness, to reach new people, to reach qualified um, qualified customers. Um, but we also saw that it was losing its trust. It was losing its um, its strength, particularly with the advent of hashtag ad and that becoming um, becoming so much more what the influencers were posting and, and how they were engaging with it. So when we set out recognizing that trust is what's missing from um, from mask and care authenticity, we can't build that on the back of hashtag ad. <laughs> um, so we started with a completely organic strategy and said, we're not going to pay anyone. Um, and that was a, a strategy that was met with skepticism <laughs> by some outside of outside of the organization. But ultimately, we really believe that we needed to build the brand through 
authentic excitement around the formulas, around what we stood for and what we created, um, and that it was on us to make the products that good, to make the experience that good. So we really approached in that way of being really thoughtful about who we went out to first, starting with people who we already know are already familiar with us are going to be primed to support and then once we had that early momentum and excitement we were able to cascade down and start to reach out to new folks um, and that was really the the pure uh pure play for for influencer for our first um, probably year to year and a half uh, and it built this incredible foundation of people that were authentically excited about us, wanting to share us. And it also, I think, set us up as a brand that, you know, that, that people, influencers didn't expect to be paid by with every interaction. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. was also something that, that we were very aware of, that once you, you know, if the first interaction you have with a partner is to say, hey, I'm going to pay you to do this post, that's probably going to be the extent of your interaction with them. <laughs> Whereas when you approach them in a way of, hey, like, let us tell you about what we're doing, really putting a lot of thought into the seating packages and doing events with them and sharing education with them, um, that really sets up the relationship differently. Um, so that's, that's very much been the foundation. But we also recognize that one, to keep scaling and growing, you know, we need to be reaching new people, reaching new channels. And, you know, there are also, it is a business for, for many of these influencers um, that are creating amazing content, that are reaching their sizable communities, um, and also wanting to be a good partner to them back has figured into how we're thinking about it. Um, so affiliate has been a, a, a bigger and bigger part of how we, uh, how we approach influencer um, with tiered commissions, uh, commission structures that help them share in the success that they're creating with us. Um, and then also we do, uh, we, we do now have uh, paid partnerships that are focused around specific areas of expertise like content, when we need assets around a new item launch or we have a piece of education that we want to do, we want a specific person to do it, we pay them for it. Um, and also with, you know, very um, expert driven content that is sitting on their own channels is an area that we started to um, to to do more in on the paid side. It always needs to be, you know, authentic first, um, someone that has supported the brand, someone that is a really, you know, right fit, natural fit with um, with the audience. I can say sometimes, Connor, it makes your tribe EMV metric like the bane of my existence because <laughs> I can't just go out and, you know, buy the, the big uh, macro top tier influencers. Like, that's not just not how we're going to be doing it. Um, Nor is it the right so, actual you know, path I, to growing, right? Like <laughs> the right path is what you're talking about. It's the about. easiest path, no. but it's not the right path. What's yeah. funny is people think yeah. it's the easy path. We saw it over and over again. People come in like, oh, I'm going to go pay these people to talk about me. And then their numbers would go down. Like, I don't get it. I'm like, because that's not how it works, right? Like I think um, – you know, it, for so many reasons that I've talked about before. So uh, it's uh, it's funny because it seems like the right path or even the easy path, but it's actually just uh, just not um, on either account. Yeah, and that takes a lot of alignment with the team because it's easy to set, and we go through this, you know, all the time. It's easy to set an EMV goal, which we do. We have EMV goals <laughs> for the year and broken down to every month, but it's hard to set 
the authenticity goal, yep. the fit goal, the, is this person a true connection for who we are and what we stand for? Are they pushing us forward, pushing us closer to who we are and who we want to reach? And that's, again, it comes down to trust, to shared values and, um, and being able to have those constructive conversations to talk about, you know, is this the right thing for us to do? How do we do this in a way that's, um, that's brand forward? Yeah, and I think it's like anything else, right? Where you have the numbers, but those are backwards looking. And I think you want to mm -hmm. use the numbers plus intuition to make the right calls. And so yep. it makes a ton of sense. I I was actually watching, I don't know if you've seen this, it's the uh the it's called The Last Blockbuster. Have you seen that one? It's on Netflix. I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it. It's pretty brutal for Netflix to like pay to have this documentary documentary created that like <laughs> they're basically just like standing on the grave of Blockbuster. Um, but uh, you know they've got the CFO of Blockbuster in there, and he's like, you know, most people don't know this. He actually says Netflix didn't kill them. He's like, you know, at the time that they really kind of went downhill very, very quickly. He's like, we were actually like fairly competitive with Netflix. We were rolling out our own streaming services. We had all the retail locations. He was like, it was kind of the best of both worlds. But what had happened is they had gotten um, saddled with a huge amount of debt that one of their acquirers had put on the balance sheet and it just put them into bankruptcy. It just right, huh. right in 2008 when things hit the fan and, yeah. um, and it just killed the business. He's like, that's what killed the business. He's like, it wasn't Netflix. Did was any of that tied to their brick and mortar footprint? Because that's also, I know a real challenge that I was one of my kind of learnings coming out of Westfield. A lot of those leases are written for 15 and 20 years. How do you commit yourself to a certain channel, a certain, you know, strategy 20 years ahead in today's time? Like that, that is a huge risk and liability that you see kind of falling on these big chains again and again. Well, you know, take it from the source, right? So this is a CFO. I'm sure he's trying to deflect a little bit of blame. And also that's the number that he's going to pay attention to, right? Is the financials. So take take what he said with a grain of salt. Um, but yeah, I mean, we, we're right in the middle of it right now. We've got our own lease that we signed that was like a four-year lease. And it's like, you know, we've got three years left on it. Haven't been able to use it in a year. Like San Francisco literally won't let us use it. And, you know, it costs us way more money than I want to admit, um, particularly yeah. in public. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, the 15 we were, to 20 We were going to sign months. a lease. We were going to sign our first lease. It was like... I think we had the document the second week in March and we're like, you know, we're just going to, we're just going to wait on this for a minute. And, um, and it was actually a sublease and the people were super angry at us. Um, but we put a pin in it for a month and it is probably one of the best. Decisions oh my God. This thing's cost <laughs> us. It's my co-founders like worst business decision. He like regrets it to this day. Cause it was, it was problematic on multiple fronts. But they, uh, and it's funny because I remember going through it and we're like, we're never going to be that startup company that takes on the wrong lease and just ends up being, you know, screwed by it. And, uh, and we were, so, you know, there's, there's a learning for people. Don't sign long-term leases, uh, if you can avoid it. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's, you know, I feel like I've used up a lot of your time already and I have 20 questions here that we haven't even gotten to, but we are going to go to the fun question round. And uh, Melanie has not seen these, but, um, and I think we might've answered no. the first one already, but um, so first, when you decided to go aerospace engineering, did you ever think about being an astronaut? No, <laughs> <laughs> no definitely not. Um, 
No, uh, and I don't think, I think I would need a little bit more <laughs> space. I don't, <laughs> I don't think I would make a very good astronaut. I think I shared, I shared with you before, when I was in high school, I decided I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to go into the Air Force. Ah, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I think it also was a good, it was a smart pivot to, <laughs> to, to shift away from later. <laughs> okay. My, my family tells me, my dad likes to tell me I have issues with authority. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I uh, I remember my old my old football coach told me he's like you should go to the military. I'm like what? I'm like why would I go to the military? Similarly, not great with authority. And uh, but he's like you thrive when you're challenged. He's like they would challenge you. I'm like I'm still not going to yeah. go, but I appreciate the, I get that. Uh, yeah, I get that. Yeah. yeah, and I do think structure is actually really really important. And I, when I was a younger person, I I really struggled with structure, but. As I have matured into my um, my current self, I I love structure because it helps you create the bounds. And in my mind, it's only when I know like where are the edges that I can push it to the limit. So by having that clarity as to this is what you know we definitely are doing, want to do. This is definitely what we don't want to do. Um, and having even that that structure and pace as to decide, okay, am I am I on the right track? It's been hugely helpful, and I think has actually let me be more creative and more open-minded because again, like I, I, I know I can find the edge. <laughs> I can find the edge, but only if it's kind of written, <laughs> written on the ground. For sure. Um, okay. Last question. So I want you to imagine a world in which you chose to work at Tribe, which again, this came down to, we literally, I don't know if you, I, if I'm, I want to make sure that I remember this correctly. What it basically came down to is you had to be in LA, right? Because your husband was getting his PhD in computer science. And we were all about being in the same building at the same time. And so now looking back, it seems so silly because like, well, why don't we go remote? But I don't even know if Zoom technically existed back then. So, but imagine you chose that divergent path. Would you still be in the software world? Or do you think you would have found yourself back on the brand side? What do you think? I'm a brand person. I'm 100% okay. a brand person. And I, I just love the strength of that connection um, to make something that people use and, um, and you know, ultimately can be a part of what's important to them, you know, whether that is getting rid of hormonal acne or, you know, using ingredients that, um, that are better for you and feel like you're investing in yourself or even just creating a brand that creates more space for you to be you. So I, I would have enjoyed every minute of tribe, I'm sure, but, <laughs> but ultimately I am, I am a brand person. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Seems like you chose the right path, but, uh, thanks so much, Melanie. I appreciate you taking the time. I know I learned a lot today. I know other people will learn a lot from this as well. So Thanks again. And, uh, you know, I'll see you, see you somewhere on some, some speaking tour that we'll be on again. Awesome. Love doing it, Connor. And I'm going to go check our tribe brand bras right now. Ah, there you go. <laughs> All right. Bye, Melody. <laughs> Bye. Hit subscribe now. Earned by Tribe Dynamics. Tribe Dynamics unlocks your social media influencer community. Our platform not only tracks and measures your best influencer relationships, but discovers new influencers to grow your business through earned media. Get started with a demo today at TribeDynamics.com. TribeDynamics.com.